We're gonna start with a rapid fire round. You can answer with one word or one sentence. You can pass any question that you don't want to answer. First question is, at what age do you want to retire? I am already retired. How long does it take you to get ready in the mornings? Depends on the morning. Uh, typically, I roll out pretty ready to rock. A most embarrassing moment of your life. Okay, so I was doing a podcast and I had eaten a sandwich and I had sandwich stuck inside my teeth and I was picking the sandwich out, but I didn't realize that although my audio was off, my video was on and they were watching me pick out the sandwich. Um, and then when they like, I was like noticed, I was like, oh my God. And then I had this moment of, oh, why would I be embarrassed about that? We're all just human. So actually the most embarrassing moment of my life turned out to be an incredibly um, insightful moment of like, does it really matter? We all get sandwich caught in our teeth. Meditation got me there. Favorite color? Hot pink. What time of day are you most inspired? Evening, I'm a night owl. How many hours of sleep can you survive on? Survive or thrive. Uh, seven and a half to eight is my preference. I don't like less than that. Fill in the blank, an upcoming technology trend is blank. An upcoming technology trend is a great opportunity to... I'm not gonna answer that one. Okay. The city in which the best kiss of your life happened. Toronto is the city in which the best kiss of my life happened where I was born and raised. Hey Kwan, Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk? Neither, ew! The biggest mistake of your career? <laughs> Pass. How do you relax? That's really obvious. Meditation, meditation, meditation. How many cups of coffee do you drink per day? Zero. A habit of yours that you hate? Oh, okay. So a habit of mine that I used to have that I absolutely hate is being overly defensive. Somebody will bring up something and my ego will go, oh no, I need to hide the fact that I don't know that. Or, oh no, I need to prove that I'm right. My husband was the one who pointed out that habit and uh, gave me the impetus to apply the meditation practice that I, you know, so practiced to be able to get out of myself and say, oh yeah, why am I defending about that? That's really stupid. So kick that habit out to the curb. The most valuable skill you've learned in life. The most valuable skill I've learned in life is how to be kind and loving. Your favorite Netflix show. Pass. The last movie that you saw that had an impression on you. Pass. The last song you've been listening to. Pass. Okay. So now we go on to the longer questions, which you can answer with as much ease and time as you like. Uh, how did your background in neuroscience, psychotherapy, design, and fashion influence your journey in co-founding Muse and developing wearable technology for meditation and mindfulness? So I began the journey of founding Muse in the early 2000s. In 2002, I worked in the research lab with Dr. Steve Mann. He's the, wearable, he's the inventor of the wearable computer, the guy that literally made Google Glass before Google did. And he had an early brain-computer interface device and at the time, we were using it to create concerts where people could make music with their brain. 48 people at a time would slip on an electrode, close their eyes, and while they did so, the sound in the room would change. And I stood back and said, oh my God, we are like literally interacting with the world with our minds and the world needs to know about this. 
So I got together with my co-founders, Chris Amony and Trevor Coleman, and the three of us sat around in a basement like every good startup should, and we're like, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna make this technology sing? And we spent our time doing things like trying to control technology with our minds and make light bulbs glow brighter and sounds change. And we realized that as we were teaching people to focus, to make that light bulb glow really bright or to relax and then you know make music that they're listening to calm down, what we were really teaching them to do was not control the technology that was outside of them, but to control the technology that was inside of them to actually be able to manage and control their own minds to make that light glow bright or change the music. And that what we're actually doing is far more valuable than allowing people to interact with tech out there. We're allowing people to understand and interact with their own technology, their own mind state, and be able to use it and shift it in ways that were really supportive of themselves. So we set on the path, not in making brain sensing technology to control the world, but instead making brain sensing technology to help you reflect on the self. And the first thing that we recognized we could really do was help people meditate. And that as we were telling people to focus, to make the light go right or relax, we were actually teaching them to focus and relax. And this was in sense, a core of a meditation practice. And when we sat back and said, what do we really care about in this world? Like, what do we really want people to do to make their life better? An obvious answer was meditation. And if we could only get more people to meditate, the world would be a better place. And so that started the creation of Mingus, the brain sensing headband that helps you meditate, and now sleep, which was the beginning of the kickoff of our journey in helping people understand what goes on in their mind using technology. So how does this work, the, the object in your hand? Yes, so this is the Muse. It is a clinical grade EEG, meaning it has sensors on your forehead and behind your ears. It slips on like a pair of glasses. And then it tracks your brain during a meditation practice and sends that data to your smartphone or tablet. While you're meditating, you're getting real-time feedback from your brain to let you know if you're doing it right. So we all know that meditation is amazing for you, but it can be pretty hard to do. You know, when you sit down to meditate, you sit there, you close your eyes, your brain's bouncing all over the place, and you're like, eh, this sucks, I'm a terrible meditator. Well, with Muse, we aim to change all that. Muse actually gives you real-time feedback to know when you're focused, when you're meditating, and when your mind is wandering. The metaphor we use is your mind is like the weather. So when your mind is wandering, you hear the sound of the rain pick up. And when you close your eyes and relax and focus on your breath, the rain quiets. When you really stay focused on your breath in that meditation zone, you get the chirping of birds letting you know that you're doing it right. So you're getting real-time feedback during your meditation, and then after the fact, you get data, charts, graphs, scores, things that show you what your brain was doing through the course of your meditation and help you improve. So what you measure, you can now improve. We have meditations for the brain, the heart, the breath, the body. We have an extraordinary set of sleep tools, all of which help you get better insight into yourself and improve the practices that make your life better. Can you share some insights into your creative process and how you combine science, neuroscience, emotion, and design to create innovative products? Okay, so I love the creative process. I'm somebody who started in very disparate worlds. My mother was an artist, so I grew up with very beautiful, large-scale oil-on-canvas paintings, and I was brought up to believe that from nothing, a blank canvas, 
You could take what was in your imagination and make it come to life, create something that was beautiful and really moving. I also grew up in a household where my dad was an entrepreneur and a businessman, and so business was in my blood. I had a lemonade stand when I was five years old, and we sold lemonade with raspberries and mint in it because it was a better product. You know, it was like early product marketing. And so my creative process was something that was really messy and like emotive and engaged, but also very focused on how you could build a business around it and with that kind of business discipline. I went off to study neuroscience because I was fascinated, not just about lemonade, but actually about the brain and how we work, and then brought together the experience of creating stuff along the way. I was a fashion designer because that's another way of exploring creation in the self and creating cool products and making your ideas come to life. But a terrible, terrible business model. Um, and brought all of that entrepreneurial spirit into the work that I did with Dr. Steve Mann in the lab, the inventor of the wearable computer, taking clinical grade EEG signal and bringing it into a product. And so it's been this incredible process of weaving both the emotive parts of life that are meaningful, the technological prowess that you get from a neuroscience degree, and the business sense, uh, all combined with this sort of drive that will never stop. You know, you can have each of these pieces, but as you know, many of you listening are artists and entrepreneurs, and like the thing that drives you is the desire to create and that feeling in there that just won't let you stop. <laughs> it just wants you to create the thing and bring it out into the world and make it happen. Um, along the way, I picked up a meditation practice, which taught me how to stop in a different sense, not how to, uh, you know, give up my passion or my ambition, but instead to create a space of quiet and calm that allowed me to be much more focused and much more uh, intentional about what I was doing and really choose the right paths rather than being reactive to it and to take feedback on the creations um, and like meaningfully utilize that rather than just being defensive. So it's been this process of creative desire, drive, um, a eventual discipline that honed me to be able to take in creative input and to drive forward. And then the whole other piece when you're running in business which is being able to manage a team and being able to bring people into the vision to be excited about what you're doing and create an organizational structure that people can work in to all work together towards the same goal. So it's a very complex interweaving, a complex suit that probably a lot of you listening will identify with. Um, and it's a process that continues. I'm, I'm not an expert at any of these pieces yet, but they seem to be getting better and better as I do them as time goes on. So you talk a lot about wearables. What do you think about Apple's new wearable? Apple's new VR wearable? Yes. So Apple's new VR wearable is very interesting. Obviously, Apple getting into something gives you the check mark of it's real, it's here, and Apple's going to do a darn good job of it. Um, whereas the meta versions you know, still have their awkwardness associated with them and still can be in the corner of like a developer or something that's not necessarily mainstream. Once Apple comes into the play, you know they have their own playbook behind it. You know they have a range of applications already baked in in their minds that are going to be meaningful. And hopefully it won't go the way of the Google Glass. You know, Google Glass was an 
awesome experiment where Google threw out this very, very cool device with no good particular use cases. And so you had a bunch of people walking around with the coolest, latest technology and nothing truly great to do with it, which was fine because that was 10 years ago and technology hadn't quite caught up to, um, to the device and its real capabilities. So you know when Apple brings something out, they have a good idea, they have a game plan, and they have a use case. So I'm excited to see what's going to happen to the world of VR now that Apple's in the game. So you started your first research lab at the age of 17, which is quite remarkable. How did that early experience shape your career and passion for neuroscience? So from a very young age, I was interested both in art and science. As I said, my mom was an artist. And I really wondered how the world worked. Like, why was this table hard? Why did I think about the world in the way that I did? So I went on to study science um, and absolutely loved it. I'm 43, so this was in, you know, the early 1990s when there wasn't a big push for girls to be in STEM. And I got super lucky and my high school science program actually had a PCR machine and an early biotechnology um, focus to it. So I was learning biotech in 1996 um, and then I was able to actually start teaching how you like extract DNA from basic cells how you replicate that DNA in a very simple PCR machine in 1996 in my like high school lab um, and then from there got a job in a research lab working with Dr. Ellen Bernstein whose lab focus was on hemopoietic stem cells. And they looked at embryonic stem cells in knockout mice, and this was 1997, like as many buzzwords as you could get for the late 90s. And I was, you know, just a very junior assistant in the lab, but I was 17 years old and actually doing real research with mice and helping and assisting in understanding the development of blood cells, hemopoietic stem cells, in these knockout mice ecosystems. And so that really um, gave me an extraordinarily leg up into feeling like I could really make impact in the field of science, um, gave me both the confidence and the tools and the language to be able to engage with it. And then when I went to university, I went for neuroscience. Um, although at the same time, I had a line of clothing that I sold to stores in New York. And then when I graduated, I opened a little clothing store. So I was always playing between these worlds of art and science. So even at 16, I had a little line of clothing that they carried in the streets of Toronto, like my hometown, um, while I was working in this research lab at 17. So there's always been this tug for me back and forth between science and art, where science is the enabling tools, science is the methodology, science is the um, linear process of discovery, science is a, you know, a form of technology, and the emotional part, the human part, the creating experiences part, the, you know, excitement and stimulation part, the color, the life, the sound. And so in the building of Muse, what we have is a uh, very like technologically capable device. It's a clinical grade EEG, which gets extraordinary signal, which is used by hundreds, probably thousands of research labs across the world with 200 papers published on it. And we get a beautiful human experience. You get to be able to actually hear the sound of your own mind, to be able to, you know, touch in with yourself during the practice of meditation 
in a way that is really metaphoric and beautiful. So it's this, you know, pulling together of art and science that allows for the best innovations to exist. And when we think about, you know, the world of gaming, when we think about the technologies that we really love, when we think about the devices that Apple makes and how they fit seamlessly and how they're beautiful, it is that seamless interweaving of extraordinary tech and understanding the human factor and making experiences that absolutely delight. Do you have any thoughts on neurodiversity and the increasing role it has come to, uh, the focus it's come to in the current world? Hallelujah for neurodiversity. In, in the very recent past, the idea that somebody would have anxiety, depression, ADHD was really, truly a stigma. It was the feeling that this person was somehow atypical and not normal and therefore not good that it, you know, may taint our environment or, you know, the work that we're, that one would be doing if you had somebody like that on your team. I've, I've heard these conversations. They're really unhelpful. And only in the last five years have we made the recognition that, frankly, all of us are somewhere on the spectrum of anxious and depressed. Um, many of us are on the spectrum of um, ASD or other associated labels. Many of us have ADD, ADHD characteristics, if not a diagnosis, and all of that is okay. It makes, sometimes makes the experience of living quite difficult. Um, sorry. It sometimes makes the experience of living quite difficult. I myself got postpartum OCD and had very intense, intense thoughts in my head that were illogical and un nonsensical but felt so utterly intense and real and I was a mental health professional it was still hard for me to parse these thoughts so you know living with neuro, uh, neurodiversity living with a divergent mental experience um, can be extremely valuable in that it gives you insight new skills new capabilities just a different way of being it can also be extremely challenging and so when we approach the question of what is it to be neurodiverse, is this a good thing, is this a bad thing? I think we first have to say, you know, what is it to be a human? To be a human can be very challenging at some times, both mentally and physically. For some people, it can be even more challenging and hard to understand why your mind or your brain seems to work differently than other people. Why you feel like you're blue all the time and it sucks. And for other people, they seem to be going about the world as it's fine. Like it's, it's can be very hard to reconcile these things, or you can have, you know, voices and thoughts in your head that are just so sticky and compelling and suck. And like, why does everybody else seem to be just acting fine and like not experiencing this? Um, and when you're able to name it, label it, yes, labels can be bad things, but labels can also be very good things insofar as they can help you understand and put context to your own experience and then allow you to access a myriad of tools and techniques that others who have experienced this can use, whether it is pharmaceuticals, meditation, talk therapy, CBT, DBT, groups. You know, there's so many tools that you can use to help you make sense of your own internal experience and begin to shift those internal experiences to ones that are more supportive of your own life. So, you know, neurodiversity is amazing. Neurodiversity has made some of the greatest art on this planet, whether that is, you know, film, writing, songs, visual arts. Neurodiversity in ways that don't serve you can be terrifying and frustrating and crippling. Um, again, from some of that comes the ability to 
communicate about these than to create pathos to our human condition, but also it could just make your life really suck and feel really hard and really bad. So, you know, part of my mission in life is to help people understand that the stuff that your brain gives you, the thoughts that your brain is giving you that maybe is not so aligned with the world around you are things that you are able to understand and shift and change, that you can actually have agency over your own mind insofar as you can have an understanding of it, insofar as you can, you know, stand outside your own self and be the observer of your experience and then take stock of that and say, is this serving me? Do, do I want to go down this path or is it not serving me? And maybe it's serving me sometimes and I want to make the choice to be here when I want to be here and also have the tools to take myself out of here when it really doesn't serve me to be there. So, you know, psychotherapy is a great tool, trained as a psychotherapist. Meditation is an essential tool to help create that sense of observer and be able to get yourself out of your own mind to be able to recognize what's going on because otherwise you may just be subsumed by it and to become a practice that allows you to identify when your thinking maybe is divergent in ways that aren't serving at that moment or to notice that your thoughts are being divergent and to use it if it's, you know, a creation for great art in that moment or something that's helpful or stop doing it if it's something that's hurting the people around you. You know, these, these are the sort of um, self-observations that something like meditation can help make. And then tools and techniques like CBT, DBT, and a range of other psychotherapeutic methodologies, as well as pharmacology, which can help you gain real perspective. If you lived your life with anxiety and you then get on Paxil or, you, or Prozac or Zoloft for a period of time and realize, oh my God, I don't need to feel that way, that can be an incredible tool to help you understand the range of you, that the range of you can go from super anxious to actually okay, feeling like normal and grounded and able to engage, and then becomes a, then becomes like a methodology to help you learn, oh, well, when I'm here, I do have the option to bring myself here, whether it's with pharmacological help or without. Now that I know I can get here, you know, what are the other means that I can use now that I've tasted it, now that I understand it? now that I can build capacity and return to this state. So this is a very long-winded answer to the question of what I think about neurodiversity. But here are, you know, many of my stream of consciousness thoughts on the subject. So in contrast to using drugs or smart drugs to optimize brain chemistry, how does meditation go beyond altering brain chemistry and actually changing the structure of the brain permanently? Okay. So meditation makes real change in the brain. So meditation is not just this thing that you do that feels good. It actually can change the meat of this organ in your head in a number of different ways. So way number one, the part of your head here, you have your frontal cortex. The frontal cortex is kind of essential because it's the part of our brain that's associated with our higher order processing, with our planning, our attention, our inhibition. It's the thing that separates us from other mammals. Now, Bad news, as you age, your prefrontal cortex thins. Good news, if you're able to maintain a long-term meditation practice, you can maintain the thickness of your prefrontal cortex even as you age. This work comes from the lab of Dr. Sarah Lazar. She had a number of individuals who were long-term meditators, defined as meditating for five years or more. One of them was 50 years old and had the prefrontal cortex thickness of a 25-year-old. Next thing that happens, so there's this little part of your brain right here, called the amygdala. The amygdala is the part of your brain that is scanning for danger. It's the emotional sense, set, set, 
the emotional center of your brain that's responsible for your fight or flight response. It's the thing that freaks out when things go bad. Um, bad news, your amygdala is kind of like a two-year-old having a temper tantrum. Good news, your prefrontal cortex's role is to manage your amygdala. So what we see in even short-term meditators is you can see a decrease in the activation of the amygdala. So that part of you that's freaking out when things are scary is not freaking out so much more. And in long-term meditators, it's even been demonstrated that you see increased projections from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala. So it's kind of like if the if kind of like if the amygdala is a little two-year-old who sees a shadow on the wall and goes like, ah, I'm freaking out, it's the shadow on the wall. The prefrontal cortex is the parent that comes in and says, let's look around, scan the scene, just a shadow. Let's turn on the light. Down, little amygdala, calm down, it's okay. And actually, in long-term meditators, as I said, you're seeing an increase in the ability of the prefrontal cortex to down-regulate the amygdala. Increased projections and increased ability to manage its freaked-out little sound. So, real change in the brain. There's a number of amazing other things that happen. One is meditation has been demonstrated to maintain the volume of your hippocampus. The hippocampus is the seat of your learning and memory. As you age, your hippocampus shrinks. Also, because cortisol has a habit of damaging and shrinking the hippocampus, meditation allows you to decrease your cortisol levels because you're much calmer and can maintain the, th the volume of your hippocampus as you age. Better learning and memory. Meditation can also increase the density of your gray matter. So the amount of gray matter you have is the number of neural connections in your brain. So for reference, Einstein had more gray matter than the average individual. Dr. Sarah Lazar's lab has shown that even just eight weeks of meditation has been able to increase the density of that gray matter. More gray matter, probably more swords. Meditation has also been shown to increase the connections to your corpus callosum, the communication between your left and right hemisphere. It's also been demonstrated to upregulate activity in the TPJ, the temporal bridal junction, which is responsible for empathy, compassion, and perspective taking. So in short, those were just a few of the many more in the ways that meditation impacts the physical structure of your brain. Best one saved for last, meditation can even decrease the aging of your brain overall. So an amazing study showed that long-term meditators had brains that looked on average 7.5 years younger than short-term meditators. This is the work of Dr. Eileen Luters. And she looked at long-term meditators, which she defined as people who'd been meditating for five years or more. So meditation of five years or more can lead to 7.5 years of a younger looking brain. Pretty good investment of 10 minutes a day? I think so. Uh, why do you think meditation has constantly, well, I don't know whether it has, it has come back. It has been important in the history of mankind for a long time, but it comes into cultures and it goes away for a while, or does it come, or do you think it's been consistently there in all cultures? When some cultures it's more, it's less. So we've seen this ebb and flow of meditation over time. Meditation is kind of like the OG technology. You know, 2000 years ago when forms of meditation were being created and passed down and taught, what it really was was a technology to help you query the mind and observe the mind and change your body and physiology. Before there were, you know, Apple watches to track your heart rate, meditation was a tool that you would use to observe your own self and to be able to see what your heart was doing. Before we had 
IQ tests, you know, before we had things that allowed us to query our minds, meditation was a tool that allowed you to sit there and observe your mental process and allow you to rewire your own brain and your own body. It is an extraordinary early technology. We have seen the rise and fall of that technology several times. So in Western culture, for example, we really didn't get great exposure to meditation until the 70s became, brought the fascination with Orientalism. That's probably really not a PC term these days. Um, and the hippie movement brought that fascination into North America and meditation became on vogue. It then sort of petered under the, you know, under the covers. You didn't see a lot of public meditation until the early 2010s. By 2013, meditation was on the cover of Time magazine, and that kind of marked this extraordinary shift into meditation being part of popular culture. Now, side note, I should mention that in India, in Asia, in Buddhist cultures, meditation has been going strong the entire time. You know, meditation is also a religious practice of engaging with the self or engaging with a god depending on the the um, lineage that you come out of there's christian meditation there's even jewish kabbalistic meditation there's buddhist meditations and a very extraordinary lineage of um teachings that come from there so you know by telling this north american story i in no way mean to um suggest that meditation isn't wasn't alive and kicking the entire time elsewhere um I'm just sort of telling the American pop culture story. So in American pop culture, in the early 2000s, you started to see celebrities meditating. By 2010, you know, you're getting articles about CEOs meditating and athletes meditating. 2013, it's on the cover of Time magazine. Oprah's starting to do it. And now you're getting the mass filtration down. You're getting people starting to say, I should meditate, um, but not really knowing how to do it. Um, Headspace came out about that time is starting to gain in popularity. So you're getting the apps coming in because you had the iPhone. You had a mechanism starting in 2010 that allowed you to have apps on your phone so that you could do these things and have a wider dissemination of it. By 2014, we came to market with Muse, a brain sensing headband that could help you meditate. And when we were pitching for Muse back in 2010, 11, 12, we'd go to VCs and be like, your technology is amazing. What's the killer app? And we'd say, to help you meditate. And they would laugh us out of the office. By 2023, those very same VCs meditate with Muse. True story. So, you know, the curve has gone like this to where you started to have tech investment in it. You had Calm.com, Calm the guy from Calm paid a million dollars for his web page that was going to just say Calm on it. That was the very first thing it did. And it was a beautiful scene that just made you feel calm. So you start to see the tech investment falling in, which then enabled more technological um, deployment. You know, our popularity went from a device that we used by a few thousand people in 2012 when we first came out to, you know, more in 2014 to now 2023, half a million people around the world have used Muse to start or enhance their meditation practice. You now have this medical sphere on it. You now have the idea of preventative medicine and healthcare and well care rather than sick care. So everybody knows that meditation is good for you because it can help you regulate your eating, regulate your physiology, decrease your chance of a heart attack, as well as all the you know, lovely softer stuff like have better relationships, have an increased sense of self, you know, evolve to be a better person. And we've come to the moment of the zeitgeist where so many people meditate that it is ne it became a badge of honor. So in the same way that 
seven or eight years ago carrying a yoga mat down the street and wearing, you know, Lululemons was like the badge of, oh, you are cool. You're somebody who's doing good for yourself. You now have to meditate if you are in the know, if you're somebody who is, you know, wanting to look like they are an evolved person. Good news, meditation actually does help you become an evolved person and possibly care less about what other people think of you in your meditation practice. Um, but it's really, yeah, it's, it's reached an inflection point where, you know, people in middle America are learning meditation in school, where it is, it is a thing that your doctor is telling you to do. It is a thing that, you know, people buy muses for their sister-in-laws because they think that she should meditate and like wants to get into it. So meditation, we now understand its benefits. There's over 10,000 publications that demonstrate the value of meditation to improve your attention, decrease your stress, decrease your heart rate, change your risk of hypertension, improve your GRE scores, you know, help you do better at work, and, 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 and. So meditation is here, I think, this time to stay. Um, it's moved, it's in the trend curve, but it's moved beyond the trend curve because it actually has a real impactful value in people's lives. And once you start a practice and get it to stick, most people say, I want to meditate every day because it makes my life feel better. You don't really hear that about, you know, the latest trend or the latest, you know, nail polish or whatever it is. So I'm really proud to be on the curve of making real lasting change in people's lives. Right, so the last question, what would you be doing in your life if not this right now? So my life's mission is to help people understand that the crap that goes on in your head doesn't need to hold you back. Those thoughts and feelings that you have of I'm not good enough, oh no, you know, the, the, I'm not a real capable human being. My life's mission is to help you understand that those thoughts and feelings are just things that your brain is serving you and not things that you need to believe or buy into. And to know that there are tools and techniques and technologies that can help you observe those thoughts and move them aside and make better choices for what fills your own mind in your own life. So if I wasn't building Muse as a brain sensing headband to help you meditate, I would be teaching it in a different form. You know, it's not about the technology. It's about you living a better life. Muse is one way to get there and it's really effective. Um, and there are lots of ways to get there. All I really care is that more people understand that they are absolutely awesome and don't let those voices in their head hold them back.